welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community, I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a discussion about how federal assistance to obtain food is being cut. Then for a peace bucket, we discuss the upcoming National Peace Rally in D.C. on March 18th. Later on, Roman labor correspondent Willie Cherry covers labor at the recent Black and Puerto Rican caucus weekend. Then Bria Barthel has a segment on a March 3rd event at the Underground Railroad Education Center in Albany. Finally, Black history just doesn't end in February. So Lavender set out to collect stories on stories of Black history that more people should know about. But first, headlines. A Missouri court has rejected an emergency motion filed by Monsanto Company in a pollution case involving damage caused by PCBs on the Mohawk Nation in northern New York. Monsanto has asked to reopen pretrial discovery since SUNY Albany has, uh, was investigating researcher Dr. David Carpenter at Monsanto's request. The Times Union reports that the faculty... Senate at UAlbany may investigate the administration's action in initially restricting Dr. Carpenter's activities before bowing to community protests. A Greenfield Saratoga man who sexually assaulted an 11-year-old got the lowest sentence possible, three and a half years, in a plea deal with the controversial Saratoga County District Attorney. According to the Times Union, the young victim's mother, who was dating the rapist, is angered by how the DA handled the case. State lawmakers have introduced a series of bills intended to curb the use of corporal punishment in New York schools after news reports revealed thousands of incidents of physical force being used for discipline. Corporal punishment has generally been banned in New York public schools, but not private schools since 1985. The punishment includes various forms of restraints in addition to physical acts. Plans to roll out the public financing of election campaigns in New York is now facing scrutiny from Assembly Democrats, which could delay the system for two years. The creation of a partial public finance system, public finance system, was the excuse Governor Cuomo used to change the ballot access laws to kill independent third parties in New York. The Gazette reports that the city of Schenectady is considering changing the pickup of large household items such as refrigerators and stoves from weekly to monthly pickup schedule. A procedural mistake will force the Albany Common Council to pass new rules for affordable housing requirements for projects with more than 20 units. Developments with 20 to 49 units will need to have 7% of their units as affordable housing. The number rises to 10% for developments with up to 60 units and is capped at 13% um, for larger ones. That's it for headlines. As of March 1st, millions of New Yorkers will see their SNAP food benefits cut by at least $95 a month as Congress is ending various additions to federal food benefits enacted during the pandemic. Mark talks with Krista Hesdorfer of Hunger Solutions New York. We're joined by 
Krista Hestoffer, who is the government relations uh, manager at Hunger Solutions in New York, a group that works to solve hunger uh, in our state. And they recently held uh, a press conference to draw attention to the fact that the uh, programs that were developed during the uh, pandemic to extend uh, SNAP benefits, people used to call it the food stamp benefit, are expiring because the federal government believes that the pandemic is over with. So, uh, Crystal, can you maybe just give us a little introduction to Hunger Solutions and what is the problem? Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. I am here from Hunger Solutions New York. We are a statewide nonprofit organization dedicated to alleviating hunger. And our focus is maximizing the federal nutrition assistance programs. That includes SNAP, as you mentioned, WIC, school meals, summer meals, and the child and adult care food program. So we really are working to maximize those resources, make sure that all eligible low-income New Yorkers are connected with them, and that we're fully leveraging the anti-hunger programs that are our nation's first line of defense against hunger. And the issue um, that you, you know, alluded to in your, your introductory remarks um, is that the temporary federal supports that have been in place on these programs are expiring one by one. So at the start of this school year, we saw that statewide 726,000 students lost access to free school meals when federal waivers expired. And as of today, as of March 2023, uh, 2.8 million New Yorkers who rely on SNAP benefits will no longer receive the emergency allotments that the federal government provided uh, starting in 2020. Those emergency allotments brought folks' benefits up to the maximum amount or um, up to an additional $95 above that. That was a critical support uh, throughout the pandemic, and grocery prices remain at historic highs. So we're seeing really what, what amounts to a hunger cliff for families across the state. Yeah, and I understand some of the households are receiving, you know, reduction in benefits in SNAP, you know, several hundred dollars. And, and also the situation is certainly in recent years, you know, we, we've seen a big spike in inflation, but a lot of that inflation has actually been driven by the increase in food prices. Sure, we're all feeling this. We're all seeing the rising grocery costs, but for low-income families who rely on the federal safety net to ensure that they can put food on the table, um, this is a really devastating reduction in benefits. So all SNAP households are going to feel this. All SNAP households will lose at a minimum $95 in monthly SNAP benefits, and some households may see a much larger decrease in their benefit depending on um, what the maximum amount is for their household and what their normal benefit amount is. Um, so I, you know, and I should be clear that folks are going to continue to receive their normal SNAP benefit amount, but we are going to lose that emergency allotment that has really helped families throughout the pandemic. Now, I was focusing on, on SNAP because March 1st was the day that the uh, supplemental increased benefits ended. But as you mentioned, um, over 700,000 students also losing access to free you know, school meals. You know, what are some of the things you're hoping that Governor Hochul and state lawmakers may step in uh, to help deal with the hunger problem? We're really hoping New York will step up, you know, fill this gap, make sure that folks across our state have access to the nutrition resources that they need. We are urging the legislature and the governor 
to include healthy school meals for all New York kids in the final state budget. This would ensure that all students across the state have access to free school breakfast and lunch, regardless of income or application status. It would be a fundamental part of a child's education, just like textbooks and transportation. We're also asking the legislature and the governor to come together and fully fund anti-hunger proposals that are on the table, including enhanced funding for SNAP outreach and application assistance to make sure that families who are eligible are able to connect with those benefits. That's a, a program that we provide, we manage um, statewide called the Nutrition Outreach and Education Program. That is a huge support for families who are not yet connected with SNAP, but ought to be and could be really benefiting from that program. And we're also encouraging the legislature and the governor to fully fund HIPNAP and Nourish New York, which are important funding streams to support the emergency food sector of food banks, soup kitchens, um, and other uh, emergency food providers who are expecting to see an increase in demand with the reduction in SNAP benefits. Now, I'm not as well versed in the state budget as I used to be, but you know, my, my recollections were talking about a couple hundred billion dollars overall for the state budget. And I, I did read recently, I thought that Governor Hochul wanted to put aside about something like $8 billion into a rainy day fund because she doesn't think it's raining yet. How much money are we actually talking about you trying to get an increase in funding for these various anti-hunger initiatives? It's for the Healthy School Meals for All proposal, we're looking at around $200 million, which is a drop in the bucket for New York State's budget, as you mentioned. It's um, a really meaningful investment um, and one that the state could absolutely find funding for. Um, when it comes to our you know, SNAP outreach and education through the Nutrition Outreach and Education Program, um, we're asking for uh, an increase from the executive budget of uh, about $1.9 million. And that investment has, in recent years, had a return of uh, 27 to 1 uh, to the state. So it's, it's really a sound investment to make. It ensures that folks have access to the nutrition resources that they need to thrive and it maximizes federal programs that provide this support for families. And, you know, most of these federal programs are largely funded by, by federal dollars. When you get more, you know, people to sign up, you're bringing not only helping to reduce hunger and get healthier kids and families, but you're also bringing, you know, money into um to, to local stores. Now, I, I remember when I used to, you know, work with the Hunger Action Network, I was surprised that a fairly high percentage of the people going to these food pantries and soup kitchens, even though they may have been income eligible, a lot of them are still not getting, you know, actually SNAP benefits. H has that been improving over time or are there still a lot of people eligible who are not getting signed up or having problems navigating the system? New York does fairly well at reaching eligible households with SNAP, but that doesn't mean that there's not substantial opportunity for growth. We have special eligibility rules in New York that would allow even more families to qualify for SNAP um, who may not realize it. Families that have earned income that is a little bit higher than the typical SNAP income guidelines, um, folks who have child care costs um, and folks who are disabled or are older adults, um, all have slightly different income guidelines. And so we know that there are many more families that could be benefiting from the program and aren't. Our nutrition outreach and education program 
provides outreach across the state to make sure that folks are aware of the program. Um, and it also provides free and confidential pre-screenings and application assistance to help people through every step of the process and make it as easy as possible for them to connect to the benefits. I will say one number I can share is that there's about 200,000 older New Yorkers who are estimated to be eligible for SNAP but not participating. So that's been a, a real focus of ours is making sure that all of those households are connected as well. Now my son these days is working with the uh, New York uh, Immigration Coalition. And I kind of recollect that some of the federal nutrition programs you know, did provide benefits to undocumented workers, I think particularly perhaps the school meals program, but others did not. How are immigrants fearing under all this in about a minute we got left? We did see that during um, prior administrations, federal administrations, um, there were some changes in rules that caused a chilling effect among many immigrant communities and made them hesitant to participate in federal nutrition programs. But you're exactly right that there are many folks um, who could still qualify depending on the program. There's different regulations um, that I'm sure we can't cover in a minute. Um, but I would really encourage folks to you know, reach out to their local NOAA coordinator if they have one, um, to visit our website, which I can share, um, to get some more information because we do know that a lot of immigrants in New York State uh, can and should be participating in these programs as well. And what is that a website? It is hungersolutionsny.org. Easy one to remember. Krista, sure Krista Hestoffer, uh, Government Relations Manager, Hunger Solutions uh, New York. Good luck. And this is uh, Mark Tunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So I should probably disclose that technically I was one of the co-founders of Hunger Solutions New York through my work at Hunger Action Network. Uh, this Sunday, the Assembly and the Senate will be releasing their one-house budget resolution so they can vote on it on Tuesday. And that will give us some indication as to how well we're doing with hunger and, and other issues. For this week's Peace Bucket, Mark talks with Joe Lombardo of the United National Anti-War Coalition about the upcoming March 18th anti-war rally at the White House in Washington, D.C. For our Peace Bucket, uh, we're joined by uh, Joe Lombardo, who is the uh, coordinator nationally of the United National Anti-War Coalition and is also quite active with uh, Bethlehem's uh, Neighbors for Peace. And there's a large uh, anti-war protest being planned in D.C. on uh, March 18th. We're going to talk about uh, there been quite a few large demonstrations recently in uh, Europe, particularly uh, opposing um, both NATO and, and supplying arms to the Ukraine at this point. Um, but there's been a lot of division in the peace movement in the United States. Um, well, I think most peace groups do think that uh, you know Russia was wrong, illegally invaded. Um, the Ukraine, uh, most peak groups also recognize that the United States and NATO consciously provoked, um, you know, what uh, Russia did. There's also big disagreement as to whether or not uh, the United States should be supplying lots of weapons to the Ukraine. Most peace groups say no, but some people support the right of self-defense say yes. So we've asked uh, Joe Lombardo on to help uh, educate us or to give us an overview of what's going on. So, so, Joe, why don't we start off and talking about what's the March 18th rally focused upon? Oh, I will say one thing that I think all the peace groups do focus upon, despite other disagreements, 
is the need to dismantle the American war machine. So, Joe. On March 18th, we'll be holding a rally. Uh, March 18th is a significant date because it's the uh, 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And we think it's important to um, point that out in light of what's going on in Ukraine um, because uh, it, it highlights the hypocrisy of the United States with all the invasions and occupations and millions that have been killed in the U.S. wars um, to then be uh, critical in the way they are of Russia uh, is, is the height of hypocrisy um, in my um, uh, estimation, especially since we believe the U.S. and, and NATO really provoked this war and were trying to see this war happen because they thought it was a through sanctions and through the war, they could destroy Russia, which I think was their goal. However, there is a large coalition, and it's it's unique in the sense that it's the first time some of these groups have really gotten together to pull in the same direction. It includes UNAC, my own organization, the United National Anti-War Coalition, and the Answer Coalition, the other major um, anti-war coalition in the United States. It includes Code Pink and World Beyond War and Veterans uh, for Peace. And there's a, a interesting network that was formed recently called the um, Network uh, um, uh, Against War in Ukraine that's involved. But um, somewhere over 90 groups at this particular point have endorsed this rally. So we're hoping it can be good. Uh, we know that it's been difficult to organize large rallies in the United States recently because the movement has been weak, the left has been weak, um, and those two things are related. But also there was the COVID um, uh, situation. People haven't fully come out of that yet and are, are a little weary of coming together in large actions. Um, but we've also been so divided and we've been peppered with so much propaganda and so much censorship against anti-war issues. And both parties are pro-war at this particular time that it has divided the anti-war movement and even some people within the anti-war movement um, will not support this action because they really support the war in, in Ukraine. So um, we think this could be a, a, a good step forward for us, even though um, our position um, against the war in Ukraine and for negotiations and a ceasefire is not one that's supported by the media, not one supported by the powers that be in this country. We think uh, it is one that's winning a lot of support among the people in this country, and we're hoping to see a good-sized demonstration at the White House on March 18th, and there is transportation from um, the whole East Coast. Speaking of a ceasefire, you know, once again, that's an issue that divides some people. Most peace groups believe you you stop wars, period. Uh, others argue, well, if we stop the war now, those who believe that Russia needs to go back to its prior territories argue, well, that won't occur. What what type of ceasefire, you know, you know, is possible? And I've also read that both China and Brazil have recently been pushing various peace ceasefire proposals. Is that gaining gaining any traction within the Biden administration? No, none whatsoever. Biden does not want to see peace. Um, so uh, um, I, I think that there have been ceasefire proposals in the past. We saw the, the two Minsk Accords, which were ceasefire agreements. 
which were never abided by um, by the Ukrainian military. They continued to attack the people in the Donbass. And even before the uh, February, last year of February invasion by Russia, uh, they had killed 14,000 people in the Donbass. So they did not abide by those agreements to cease fires in the past. And I think it was at the behest of the United States that did not want to see the ceasefire. But we've now learned from the former French prime minister and the former German prime minister that the West never had any intention of doing those ceasefires. They were just hoping that it would give the US and NATO more time to build up the military of the Ukraine, which they did, trained and armed by the United States and NATO to be the largest um, and most powerful military in in um, in Europe. And they intended to use this against Russia. Um, so they were not for ceasefire agreements before. And since last February, there's been two uh, periods of negotiation between Russia and Ukraine. And on the behest of Britain and the United States, um, they got Ukraine to pull out of those. But had the first one happened, which was last March, right after the invasion, it is likely that all that would have had to have happened was uh, Ukraine agree that Crimea would stay as part of Russia, which the vast majority of Crimeans want, and that they stop attacking um, Donbass and uh, the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics and the Donbass. Uh, that could have been the basis of an agreement. It no longer could be the basis of an agreement, because the more and more long-range missiles that the U.S. gives to Ukraine, Russia thinks it has to push back further and further and further to make sure those missiles can't hit its territory and now the territories of Donbass and so forth, which, which they are in control of. We only so, have about two two minutes left. So let me sneak yes. in a two part question. Yes. Um, you know, is there any transportation being organized? You know, for March eighteenth in the capital district, and then second, um, this is this March eighteenth event is also about other wars and conflicts the United States is engaged in. You want to quickly touch on that a little bit? Yeah. Well, we know Palestine is exploding right now. There's the new right wing government has been attacking people all over the place killing people, killing children in, in um, Palestine, but all the other wars, Yemen and so forth, that the U.S. has been involved in and is involved in with its um, uh, uh, bases all across the world and its military surrounding um, countries and its sanctions. So we're, we're including all those wars, although Ukraine is the center of it. People can get information on transportation. I can give you the information for the capital district. But for anybody that's listening to broadcast, if you just go to unacpeace.org, U-N-A-C-P-E-A-C-E.org, you'll see an article with links to the transportation. And you can see what transportation is being organized or how to get hooked up with transportation from the areas that you are. But there's transportation from capital district and all throughout the entire east coast uh anything going on from with our local congressmen united states senators uh pushing for peace stopping the war no they all support war um and i understand bethel neighbors for peace also does a what a weekly visual on monday or are you gonna we have do. any special speakers right before the march 18th maybe get some media coverage uh um, yes. Well, tomorrow we have a, um, a film at the Bethlehem Library at seven o'clock 
Um, tomorrow being Thursday. Tomorrow being Thursday, sorry. March second. Yes. And every yes, and every Monday at four to five until daylight saving time, and then it'll be five to six. We have a vigil at um, Four Corners in Del Mar, which is uh, uh, Delaware Avenue and Ellesmere Avenue. I urge people to come. Well, thank you very much, Joe Lombardo, uh, United uh, National Anti-War Coalition and Bethlehem's Neighbors for Peace. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So in the recent weekends in um, Europe, particularly France and Germany, tens of thousands of people um, took to the streets to protest the fact that um, there are countries who are sending weapons to uh, the Ukraine, for some reason not covered by mainstream American media, but it is here on the uh, Hudson Mohawk uh, magazine, and we will continue uh, particularly to cover, see how big March 18th is, um, but for those of you just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. And I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support the program by telling a friend, stranger at the bus stop, co-worker, somebody at your church or mosque or synagogue. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Willie Terry, roaming labor correspondent, filed a labor segment from the luncheon at the recent Black and Puerto Rican Caucus conference chaired by Terry Melvin, president of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. Thank you so much. Now, the plan was... The plan was that everybody was supposed to have a plate by now. We're going to start the program and we're going to shut down the buffet. But, hold up, hold up. If y'all promise me, pinky swear, that y'all gonna be quiet, whether you in the buffet or at your table throughout the program, we gonna leave the buffet open. Can y'all pinky swear? I don't hear y'all, can y'all pinky swear? Okay, we gonna, we gonna leave it open till the noise get too loud and I shut it down, okay? All right, let's, let us, Y'all starting already. Uh, first order of business is uh, Marcus Harrison uh, in the house. Marcus Harrison is Mar Marquise or Marcus Harrison. Is he is he in the house? Where he at? Where he right? Where he at? I just need to know. How much money you got left that I could spend on this Visa card that you dropped on the floor? I mean, huh? I, I just, I just want to know: is it what's the limit? 
they got some vendors out there. And I was going to pick up a few things, but I didn't want to go over the limit on the car. So he ain't going to tell me the limit. He just going to come and get the car. That ain't right. That ain't right. But we, uh, here he come. He moving now. He ain't moved that fast in 10 years. Look at him. Don't run. Take your time. Take your time. Sisters and brothers, I want to welcome you to the 2023 Labor Luncheon at the New York State Association of Black and Puerto Rican, Hispanic, and Asian Legislators Conference. Give yourselves a hand for being in the house. Is labor in the house? Is labor in the house? All right, all right. A. Philip Randolph said, justice is never given. It is enacted and the struggle must be continuous for freedom is never a final fact, but a continuing evolving process to higher and higher levels of human, social, economic, and political and religious relationship. Sisters and brothers, what that means is the battle is not over. Whatever battles we won last year, whatever battles we won in November, whatever battles we won before this year, the battle is not over. Quality affordable housing still needs to be dealt with. Quality affordable health care for all still needs to be dealt with. A criminal justice system that truly truly is colorblind, still needs to be developed in our state and in our country. The right to vote for who represented us in the halls of government still has to be dealt with in our state and in our country. A fair and indexed minimum wage, to name a few, needs to be dealt with in our state. The battle is not over, sisters and brothers. It is just beginning. The right to organize a union, and we're going to be celebrating that today, still is a battle that we have to fight each and every hour or each and every day. So when we come together on this weekend, we come bringing our issues to the table. We come not only to hear from our legislators, but we come to give them real working people issues that they must deal with, and we come to hold them accountable. Now, how do we do this? In order to keep the battle going, we must open opportunities and doors for our young emerging leaders that we have coming up behind us. I realize, and I just said this on yesterday, that my days ahead of me are much shorter than my days behind me in this movement. It is my responsibility and it is our obligation to reach down and bring up those young emerging leaders and put them in places where they can make real change in this movement. We have to call out our friends as well as our enemies. Stand up with those who fight for working people and knock down those who try to get in our way.
Labor, we've got work to do. And we come together on this weekend to partner with like-minded civil servants, like-minded legislators who understand that it is the middle class that's going to make this state and this nation better. And it is the union that makes the middle class. So give yourselves a hand. At this time, I want to call on one of our co-chairs of the luncheon to come forth and bring her remarks. Assembly, Assembly Member Joyner is going to come, chair of the Assembly Labor Committee. Give her a hand as she comes forward at this time. Y'all can do better than that. She's carrying our water each and every day. Y'all can do better than that. She's pushing for men index and minimum wage. Give her a hand. Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to Albany. Um, I already know Labor is in the house. Um, I want to thank Terry. Um, I got here on time, and like my colleagues, because I know he follows a strict TikTok. So I will be very brief in my remarks. Um, we have an all-star lineup. We have uh, keynote speaker Sean who, from DC37, who will be coming up and speaking with us. And we will also be honoring um, two, two emerging unions that are, are on the forefront in this labor movement. So I also want to thank Latrice Walker. Let's give her a round of applause for always putting together a wonderful caucus weekend over the past couple of years. Um, as you all know, we are living in historic times. We are seeing workers take on corporate giants, whether it's Amazon, Starbucks, or Tesla. Shout out to the people of Buffalo who are on the front lines working each and every day, leading the charge on all of these efforts. Workers are making their voices known and heard throughout the state of New York and taking it to the streets if necessary. Shout out to the, the Nurses Association. We want to thank each and every one of you to come, for coming up to Albany. We all know why we're here. We all have a lot of friends. And as Terry said, please make sure your friends know why you're here. Let them know what your priorities are. We are here and we are accountable to you. So we appreciate you for standing with us in the struggle and we look forward to sitting with you in success. Uh, my great partner, Senator Ramos, who will be here shortly, and I, we will, we will be working this legislative budget session to make sure we get things done like increasing the minimum wage and indexing it to inflation this year. We will be working to ensure that we have fair pay for our home care workers. We will be making sure that any labor standards for any projects, new housing projects, any green jobs that are coming in within New York State, that they will have labor standards and labor protections. Those are some of the very few things that we will be working on, but none of this will be possible without all of your help. So continue to please make your voices known. Let your friends know exactly why you're here today in Albany. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll Give the Assemblywoman another hand, please. I'll just mention that for decades, it was the Hunger Action Network who led the fight to raise the state minimum wage because organized labor wasn't that supportive of it uh, since their workers get higher wages. Uh, and those of us who have led the fight to raise the state minimum wage do not support the proposal to index the minimum wage to inflation at this point 
because the minimum wage is too low. And the minimum wage needs to be raised to a much higher level, like $20, $25 an hour. And once it gets to be a living wage, then we can talk about indexing it to inflation. But thank you, Willie Terry. And our next story is by Bria Barthel. She heads to the Underground Railroad Education Center, where coming up is an author uh, talk with David Goodrich, who rode a bicycle to visit various uh, 3,000 plus miles to visit Underground Railroad Centers. Hi, this is Bria Barthel with Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And even though Black History Month is over, I'm still going to talk with Paul Stewart of the Underground Railroad Education Center about an event coming up in March. Paul, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you, Bria. It's a pleasure to be here. And what is this about Black History events happening outside of February? Is that allowed? Well, Black History is something that we do uh, 365 days a year, principally because we're focused on the story of the Underground Railroad, which is the story of African Americans obtaining freedom, taking their freedom during the years before the uh, American Civil War. But of course, it stretches back to the beginnings of the country and maybe even a little bit beyond that as well. We continue to do that throughout the year. Now, despite a recent book suggesting that the Underground Railroad was an actual railroad, Perhaps you can just uh, briefly summarize what Underground Railroad meant and where the term came from. Sure. The general idea of the Underground Railroad, say back in the 1830s, was called the Underground Road. By the time you got into the late 1840s, they were beginning to call it the Underground Railroad. Uh, underground Railroad, the word, the phrase means uh, secret, underground, and railroad meaning fast. So it's uh, it's more about the um, secrecy and the speed with which it appeared to operate. It has nothing to do with underground trains. In fact, the 1820s, 30s, most of the 1840s, trains had absolutely nothing to do with the Underground Railroad. But getting into the 1850s, uh, you began to see uh, people taking advantage. Now, what was really going on was that people were taking advantage of of whatever means of transportation was available. And as trains became available, sometimes abolitionists would buy tickets for freedom seekers on the trains, and that would help facilitate the travel. You know, it's funny that they uh, didn't wind up calling it the Underground Erie Canal. <laughs> <laughs> Railroad was what really caught people's imagination. And I think it's important to remember it was completely decentralized, and it was an illegal activity to help enslaved people escape slavery. Right. It, it was a movement. You know, back in the 60s, people were aware of the civil rights movement. And, and what happened was that people, Black people across the country, were upset with the segregation and the prejudice, et cetera. And they said it was long overdue for rights, you know, uh, economic rights and, and civil rights to be in place. And so people who didn't know each other read about maybe the sit-ins in, in South Carolina, and they said, oh, we're going to do that too. And so nobody had to organize it. Nobody had to step forward. Nobody had to call them and tell them. They said, yeah, this is a good thing. We're going to do this too. And that was the kind of the thing that, that happened uh, during the uh, period of the Underground Railroad is that 
you know, after 1827, changes in technology allowed newspapers to pop up all over the country. Uh, and as a result of that, as a result of newspapers sharing with each other, uh, news traveled. And when people read about activities going on in different places, uh, they took it upon themselves to step forward. The other thing that was important was family connections, and those families communicated with each other as well. Now, with it decentralized like that, there are many sites that have been identified that were safe houses or refuges for the enslaved people escaping slavery. And the event that's coming up on March 3rd is a story of someone who visited many sites in an unusual way, to my thinking. Tell us about the event. So David Goodrich, who is a scientist and also a cyclist, has been cycling around the country. And part of the cycling he was involved in uh, was following a route that Harriet Tubman took from Maryland up into New York and, and all the way to Chatham, Canada. So David Goodrich and his cycling partner, Lynn, followed the route of Harriet Tubman. And the book that David put together to tell that story is certainly an amazing book. He is a great writer. He's a very lucid writer. He relates these experiences in a very matter-of-fact uh, way. And they did a lot of interesting things along the way as well. They stopped at the Culinary Institute, for instance, uh, as they were coming up the Hudson Valley. They, you know, uh, they actually rendezvoused there with uh, some other folks that were connected to their uh, travel. And they, um, you know, they made their way up into Hudson and then they kind of got into Albany. And, and as David says in his book, he said the first thing that happened when they got into Albany is they got lost. <laughs> so I think the book itself, there's there's lots of thrills and spills in terms of the way that their travel unfolded. It's an enjoyable read. Yeah. So on March 3rd, 6 to 7 p.m., the author, David Goodrich, will be talking about his book on Freedom Road, Bicycle Explorations, and Reckonings on the Underground Railroad. Where is this happening? This is going to happen at the Stephen and Harriet Myers Historic Site at 194 Livingston Avenue in Albany. And uh, we're going to have a Zoom option. So if people are interested in the Zoom link, they should go to our website at undergroundrailroadhistory.org go to the calendar and uh, and they'll they'll find the announcement in the Zoom link there. Now, that idea of the places he went is one thing, but cycling, it said he rode his bicycle 3,000 miles? Yeah, and you know what? That may seem incomprehensible, and yet if you do your planning and you're consistent about it, it's it's just another day. <laughs> Right. Now, Paul, I happen to know that you are a bicyclist. Have you ridden your bike 3,000 miles? I, I can't say that I've ridden my bike 3,000 miles. Uh, we did do some riding on the Erie Canal, um, and it's work, and, and it's it's also enjoyable because you get to see the countryside at a slow firsthand rate uh, in a way that you would never do uh, if you were flying along in a car or some other, some other uh, method. So will David Goodrich be riding his bicycle to this event? I don't know that David Goodwich will be riding his bicycle to this event. Uh, he'll probably come in a car, but oh well. Oh, how disappointing. So you did mention that he came and he visited the Stephen and Harriet Myers residence. What was that like when you, you greeted him? Yeah, so that was a very, it was a rainy day. And actually, we uh, were really excited about him and, and Lynn 
riding around the country and coming to the Stephen and Harriet Myers residence. Now, people can come to the Myers residence for tours. You are allowed to just drive up or walk up. What will people see? What did David Goodrich see? What will other visitors see when they come to the residence? Well, David Goodrich came uh, a while back. I know, I think at the time when he, when he was there, we had a display on Thomas Elkins on the second floor. And he was an African-American doctor who was active in the 19th century and was also part of the Vigilance Committee and who lived in that neighborhood. Since that time, we've put up uh, an exhibit about Harriet Myers, and it's a beautiful uh, exhibit. Key features of the exhibit include a portrait by Dee Collin, who is a local artist, and I understand she's also on the board of the uh, Sanctuary for Independent Media. There is no picture of Harriet Myers that we know of, so it's an imaginative portrait, uh, but it does capture a lot of features from her, and it's a brilliant portrait, too. So uh, it captures features from what we know about her life. Also, we have a letter, a reproduction of a letter to William John Jay from Harriet Myers, uh, a letter that she wrote in August of 1860. So that's something that I think people will love to see. You know, I think it really enhances their encounter with the story of Stephen and Harriet Myers, and it helps people to see what her life was like in the 19th century and how she struggled in relation to this, the Underground Railroad uh, events. Okay, and that is the residence of Stephen and Harriet Myers at 194 Livingston Avenue in Albany, right near Lark Street. What days and times is the residence open for people to visit? Well, the residence is open for uh, scheduled tours from 5 to 8, Monday through Friday, and from noon to 4 on Saturday. Uh, we do ask that you call ahead and schedule your visit. We um, handle visits in a, in a way a little bit different than other museums or house museums. We like to accompany you and provide you with a tour experience. And I think that's important in terms of conveying the story of the Underground Railroad uh, and answering specific questions that people often have about the Underground Railroad story, the Vigilance Committee of the Underground Railroad, Stephen and Harriet Myers, and life in the 19th century. Thank you, Paul. Again, that's Paul Stewart from Underground Railroad Education Center at 194 Livingston Avenue, former residents of Stephen and Harriet Myers. And this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And the talk again is on March 3rd, 6 to 7 p.m. Thanks, Paul. Thank you very much, Bria. Well, thank you, Bria, for that um, story. So David Goodbridge will be there at uh, 6 p.m. on Friday, uh, March 3rd. And you can always check out the Underground Railroad Education Center that uh, Paul and uh, Mary Liz Stewart helped to co-found. To close out today's show, Lavender went around and asked various people, what is a Black history fact that more people should know? This is a part of her Dear World series. What do you wish more people would consider or do more? Hmm, that's not an easy question to answer. What do I wish more people would consider or do more? Just be kind. Can you expand on that? Like, give people the benefit of the doubt. Give people some grace. If someone has a bad attitude in a grocery store, maybe they're having a bad day. Brush it off. 
be kind. If someone is, you know, like not very attentive to you, they're in, maybe they're in a rush. Maybe they're running late for work or to pick up their kids from school. Something like that. Is there a way that people treat you that you wish they would do differently? I feel like I, I am too kind, actually. So I, feel, I feel like I get taken advantage of a lot. Like, I feel like people will ask for something, I'll do the something, and then from there, they'll ask for more, and they'll ask for more, and they'll ask for more, <laughs> instead of being mindful of my time. And then, since it's Black History Month, is there a piece of Black history uh, that you think should be told more often? I mean, none that I can think of. I do think that we don't highlight progressive black stories enough, meaning like success stories. There's so many well-educated um, professionals, high-level professionals, lawyers, doctors, engineers, and we don't, you know, seem to emphasize them enough. So that would be nice. Okay. And then uh, what black music history do not enough people know about? I mean, I'm Jamaican, so probably I, I don't know that people know a lot about the history of Jamaican music. I probably don't know enough about the history of Jamaican music because it's not really taught here. Um, and maybe not even that much in Jamaica, but yeah, that would be cool. Great. Thank you. And then if you're comfortable sharing, could you share some demographic information about yourself? such as age, race, sexuality, gender identity, disability status, the works. I'm in my 50s. I am black. I am female. I am married to a male. So it's Black History Month, February. Okay. So we're trying to get more content about black history. So is there a piece of black history that you can think of that should be told more often that's not really talked about enough? Well, I mean, blacks have had a part of our history of, of, of our country going back to the Revolutionary War. And they, they fought for our freedom and their, you know, all freedom. Civil War, they were, they were they took part in the Civil War. So people should know that they do have investment in, in, in the United States of America. This is their country also. They were they were mistreated like no one's going to say that slavery was. Is a, is it was a horrible thing. It's not a good thing. But it wasn't founded by the United States of America. Slavery has been around for 5,000 years. So, but but that, we got, with that said, it's not good. It never no, was good. No. So. I'm just 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 that. Anything you'd like to add? Something that should be. Well, I, I agree with him. You know, I mean, yeah. they certainly have been a part of our history, and Absolutely. I just think perhaps to be incorporating and accentuating their role as they went along in history. And there were many black people who were entrepreneurs, very successful people. Uh, they they had a family life, which right. seems was so prevalent when in maybe back in the you know say 19th 18th century and somehow that kind of went by the wayside and i think they need to emphasize that black families should be uh certainly encouraged you know the mother father role and all of that oh 
It should be the same with the white people, too, by the way, or the yellow or the red. Right. We, we shouldn't be divisive. We're, we're, yeah. we're all, all, what's going on today now is trying to separate us in, instead of putting us together. So that's being very divisive, yes. you know, and, and that's it, not good. And it's not true for a lot of people because, you know, I, I never had this this kind of agenda that's being promoted right now that's, you know, so horrible. When I grew up, we never had this type of thing. I mean, I never even thought about this kind of thing. And we had a mixed schooling system where I was. And the, none of us were like this. So I don't know who's promoting that agenda, but it is very divisive. And I think it's something that disunites the United States of America. I like, in particular, Althea King, who was a, is a large, one of the biggest promoters. Uh, she's the niece of uh, Martin Luther King. And she's the biggest promoter for get, trying to get the black women to understand about the, uh, abortion and how it affects their, their lives and their families. And, uh, you know, she's pro-life, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she's trying to show black women that you know, it's a life, and and it's important to her, to that woman's life, that she gives birth. I mean, that's that's. And what was the name again? Althea King. Okay. And of course, my favorite story is the one about Dr. Ben Carson. Oh my God! Because yeah. the Dr. first ben man Carson. to separate Siamese twins, but the, the problem was he was born to poverty. And his mother was such a strong influence on him that she just not did not accept that even though they were in poverty, he could not get an education and he couldn't succeed. And obviously the end of the story is that he did succeed. Right. He's a very brilliant man, a very he kind brilliant. man. Not only that. And he, humble. And he did poorly in his early grades of grade school because he couldn't see well. They didn't realize he needed glasses. When he got the glasses, that's when he started to excel. Thank you. Thank you so much. Those are really great stories, examples. And then if you're comfortable sharing some demographic information, could you share your, your sex, your race, your gender, sexuality? My gender is female. I'm proud to say, and <laughs> I'm proud to say uh, a whole female. Uh, rate white, 75 plus. <laughs> yeah. What is something that you wish people would consider or do more often? Well, that's a really good question. And, and uh, uh, I think uh, people should consider the impact of their actions on other people more often. So that's that's certainly one thing that just comes to mind, that uh, we are all uh, part of a community, a family, uh, a society, and uh, kind of see less of that than, than I would like to see. And how do you wish people would treat you differently? Oh, that's a good question, too. Uh, I actually don't have very many complaints in that space. I am treated pretty Fairly, mostly, I believe, but uh, yeah, I think I think when people communicate, I think they should be willing to listen to what I have to say, and uh, and I should be willing to listen to what they have to say. 
uh, even if we don't agree with uh, everything that uh, the other person is is saying. So I think that that's probably the more the area where I feel there is, you know, in terms of communication. Finally, since it's Black History Month, is there a piece of Black history that you think not enough people know about? Yes, and it's very close physically to us as we sit here today. Not a quarter mile from here is a historic graveyard where enslaved peoples from the 1700s are buried. And that deserves to be better known and also, in my opinion, better maintained. And uh, the community, broader community, should engage with that memory and history and uh, be more present and aware of it. Yeah. And uh, it's a testimony to th- th- those peoples who helped settle this, this area in a very direct and physical way. Excellent. Thank you. And then finally, if you are comfortable sharing some demographic information about yourself, could you? Such as uh, age, sex, race? No, not, not really. I mean, I'm, I'm a guy and, and I'm, an, I'm a techie and I'm an immigrant and that's, that's, that's good enough. That's, and a U.S. citizen, which, so those are things that I value or believe are important about me. Great. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. So some other little-known Black historical facts. Claudette Colvin was actually arrested for refusing to give her seat uh, to white passengers in Montgomery, uh, Alabama, um, about nine months before Rosa Parks, who, uh, you know, inspired the whole movement. Thurgood Marshall, first African-American ever appointed to the United States Supreme Court by LBJ, 1967 to 1991. Um, a lot of people know about George Washington Carver, developed 300 different products. Uh, and then also, Hiram Rhodes Revels, one I did not know, was the first African-American ever elected to the United States Senate, representing the state of Mississippi from February 1870 to March 1871. I did Only not know here that either. on the media sanctuary. Yeah, did not know that last one. Um, And that was from Lavender. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors today included Bria Barthel, Willie Terry, Lavender, and myself. We cover stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community. If you value independent media, consider a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. You can follow us on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Media Sanctuary, or send us an email at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. So tune in weekdays, 7 a.m., 9 a.m., 6 p.m. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.